Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. Adoption can be a lot more complicated than what's depicted in films, TV, and even social media. And for a long time, these stories have been told by adoptive parents. But adoptees are starting to flip the script and talk about their own experiences. There's not one single narrative when it comes to adoption. For Angela Tucker, race and identity have been central to her narrative. Angela is the author of the book, You Should Be Grateful, stories of race, identity, and transracial adoption. And she's also the executive director of the Adoptee Mentoring Society. And she joins us today through Zoom. Angela, welcome to the show today. Hi, thank you for having me. Of course. And for our listeners, if you have a personal experience with adoption, we want to hear from you. Join the conversation, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So Angela, we'd love to have you get us started by defining the phrase transracial adoption for our listeners. Transracial adoption is any time um, an adoption happens across race lines. So usually it's white parents adopting black and brown kids, but we see very infrequently the inverse, you know, a black or brown parent adopting a white child, but typically it's the other way around. And so that plays a part in the title of your book. So can you talk about how that phrase has been present in your life and why did you choose to have that as a part of the the title of your book? Yeah, I hear I heard this phrase all the time growing up and I grew up in a closed adoption. My parents are white, I am black, and I grew up in Washington state after being adopted from foster care in Tennessee. And even though I grew up in a closed adoption, which means like I didn't even really know all the details about why I had to be adopted, there was still just this ever-present thought from strangers and neighbors and everybody that I had a better life, given that I had white parents, basically, and that I should be glad about being adopted. And it just um it's irksome because there was just so much deeper feelings that i had in addition to being maybe grateful's not the right word but i i was placed into a really loving family my parents adopted eight children all with disabilities all from foster care and had a really lovely life and upbringing but it doesn't just automatically like cancel out the longing to know my roots, to know my birth family, to know what happened, to be with them, basically. And so I can't imagine that kind of burden that you have to carry as you know, growing up and then going into an adult and then sort of breaking that down. And so 
Would you say that experience informed you in the sense of writing this book? Because you said you've written this book from an adoptee-centric lens. Can you talk about what that means for our listeners? Yeah. Oh, definitely my upbringing informed my worldview. I'm really, I grew up in a home where my parents were really honest and open and allowing all of all of us adoptees to have our perspective on what happened. And that's actually kind of unique. I've heard a lot of adoptive parents or a lot of adoptees have talked about how hurt their adoptive parents would be if they even said anything like, I wonder who my birth parents are. I wonder why they couldn't keep me. My household, that was not the case. I felt like I could always wonder aloud and it was met with understanding. Um, so that was that was really helpful to me being able to do all of this work publicly and not feel afraid that my parents are going to be hurt. And yeah, so that did definitely color my worldview. And this is a really big question, but for those who have not experienced adoption, can you help describe the complicated feelings of being adopted? I think that it's really hard to describe what we call biological privilege. So when people have easy, <clears throat> instant access to their biology, you can just look at your parents and see where you came from because they look like you. You have mirrors right there. You could easily and probably do hear stories about your birth because your parents are right there, or you don't have any details that are like fuzzy. You don't wonder if things are true or untrue. That's called biological privilege. And for adoptees not having that, it can feel like our life is kind of built on shifting sand. Mm -hmm. So perhaps we do have really supportive and loving adoptive parents, but our our foundation, if we don't have all that information, is feels unsteady. And be, with what you just shared, too, with your family being so open about it, but there are other families who are not for various reasons. And you also say in your book that being honest about adoption is a tricky minefield to to navigate. So yeah. how can adoptees start <clears throat> navigating, you know, unpacking feelings about their adoption and being honest with those feelings? Now, what was that experience like for you? Well, in order to kind of, a lot of adoptees use this phrase, coming out of the fog, which essentially means starting to understand their own story within the big structure and system of adoption, which is an industry like any other, operates on supply and demand, unfortunately. And so to start to put yourself in there, it's it's scary. I feel like this is partly why I created the Adoptee Mentoring Society, but we need other adoptees to be supportive to that journey of understanding. When we talk with non-adopted people, I feel like the knee-jerk reaction is to try to just make it all okay. And that's where the things like you should be grateful and statements like that come out. So if we're saying things, for example, for me, of learning that my adoption was really based out of poverty, that I falsely conflated that my birth parents, my birth mother must not want me because she placed me for adoption. But in reality, she didn't have resources and support and was poor and homeless. And that's actually a, a, 
a societal issue. It doesn't have to do with her desire to parent me or not. And so when I start talking like that, people usually are really, really quick to say like, oh, but aren't you so glad? Like, look at all the opportunities you got. You wouldn't have had that otherwise. And we're not exactly trying to just compare, but we're trying to put ourselves like situationally in context. And I think adoptees do that well with each other because we know that it can't be fixed. And that's not exactly what we're seeking. And just a quick reminder for our listeners that if you have a personal experience with adoption as an adopted parent or an adoptee, uh, we want to hear from you. You can give us a call 888-720-9677 or leave us a comment on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. I'm going to take a quick moment here to take a call from Kathy Nelson, who is calling from West Hartford. Kathy, you're on the air. Oh, thank you. I appreciate it. Of course. Go for it. Oh, I just had a more of a comment. I'm so glad that I'll get your book. I'm an adoptive parent who has um, really wrestled with the understanding of this, and I'm a pretty big advocate of the honesty that adoptees should be able to have in the world. And I adopted both my children at birth. You know, went through the. It's interesting that you just said it's a it's a business in a way. I hadn't thought of it like that, but believing that by adoption, you know, through in Texas where they terminate in 48 hours. This was 28, 30 years ago that I could help avoid the trauma that, you know, that nurturing, that nurture out trumps, yeah. uh, you know, the genetic piece Nature. of it. But I've learned the deep uh, wounds that both my children have experienced regardless. And, um, and they both are Hispanic and I'm white and that's brought up a lot of complications as well. So yeah. I applaud you for telling the story. Oh, thank you so much. I think that's a common thing, the nature versus nurture, it's so fascinating to me how often we, we, I don't know, just the adoption industry and adoptive parents really are kind of conditioned to think of birth, birth parents and birth family, the nature side as all bad and nurture the adoptive parents as all good. I find this to be really troublesome in so many ways. I think, you know, obviously, it are all of us have good parts about us and so but but one way that i think is interesting when i was working at an adoption agency really early on in my career i was talking to birth parents who had placed their children for adoption and their assumption that the kids were in homes with two parents married couple white picket fence, golden retriever, and a grand piano was like really like entrenched in their belief. And they believed that the married couple like never fought, that they were just so happy all the time, you know, in the same way that I think a lot of adoptive parents are like, you know, your birth parents did this thing, maybe they're in jail or whatever the case may be. And neither side really being expansive about how we all have ups and downs, ebbs and flows, difficulties and triumphs. And that I feel like is is really troublesome. Well, thank you so much, Kathy, for calling in and sharing your story with us. We really appreciate it. And and I know, I know you just responded to her, Angela, but especially with what Kathy just shared and, and with what you just said, you know, what do we know about the mental health and emotional health of adoptees? You know, how is this added to when this sort of forced gratitude is thrusted upon them? It's yeah. not great. 
um, the American Academy of Pediatrics in 2013 came out with a, one of the, a big study and a huge sample or Korean adoptees, but they found that one in four adoptees who seek therapy attempt suicide. And in November, there's a national adoptee remembrance day. And that's because of this awful truth. And it's really easy to think that all of those um, terrible happenings are because adoptees maybe were abused or neglected or but in honesty it's not that it's adoptees who have loving homes who just don't feel like they can talk about this complicated identity and lack of belonging that feeling so yeah it's um adoptees are really overrepresented in seeking therapy and that's one big reason why I tried to create, I'm creating this nonprofit. Um, yeah. And as, you know, as we're having this conversation and, and of course this is an ongoing process that you're processing and a lot of people are processing, are you finding people more willing to talk about it? Is that helpful with the experience? I really am. Yeah. I, and let's see in the 60s and the 50s it was the baby scoop era and this is where we would send women away to give birth and then they would be reintegrated into society and never act like it never happened and thankfully we are so far from that that there are a lot of agencies that are doing a good job um of ensuring that Either there is an open adoption or that everybody understands the importance of staying connected. So that education is happening. Unfortunately, though, it's still really individualistic in that the adoptive parents have all the control in deciding whether or not they actually want to follow through with that. And a lot of the reasoning isn't really nefarious, but it's like a fear that I think adoptive parents have because so often adoption is happening across class lines and perhaps race. But when it's across class, there's a discomfort that might be here and will there is a tendency to, to misunderstand certain things. Like if a biological parent is incarcerated, if you don't have any experience with prison or you've never been in a relationship with someone who's incarcerated, you might be really tempted to just think everyone is is bad and scary and dangerous. And so therefore, you can't have a relationship with them, which is, is not true. But you really need somebody to help you talk through it and talk through your perceived fears versus actual fears. And that part is what doesn't often happen. And therefore leads to this feeling of where can I talk about adoption? Is anywhere safe? And I'm going to take another quick call from Chris, who is calling from Avon. Chris, you are on the air. Hi. Uh, I just wanted to share our experience. Um, my husband and I adopted a son in state, um, and his birth mother was also in state. And we continue to have contact with regular contact with her 
uh, and our son has a relationship with her now to the point where uh, when he got married this fall, uh, she and her partner attended the wedding. It was really lovely. I love that. Thank you so much for sharing that, uh, Chris. We appreciate your call. Uh, is that something that you hear often, Angela? More and more so, thankfully. Oh, um, but, you know, like anything, social media, um, web publications, we there are there are five million adoptees and four hundred thousand kids in foster care. And the stories that we don't hear are usually the ones that, you know, are a, a huge majority, but people who are proud of how they're interacting with their kids' birth parents, right. they're more likely to share, right? Right. And I guess, you know, I want to ask too, you know, when when imagining what it's like to reunite with birth parents, this can come with a lot of idealism. But oftentimes, I mean, like you just mentioned, you know, these reunifications are a lot more complicated than that. So you have your own experience when you reunited with your birth mother. Can you talk about what that experience looked like for you? Yeah, I definitely idealized my birth mother and my birth father, but this is partly because I went 25 years without knowing them. And that's 25 years of building them up in my brain to be these like saintly people. And also why it's so important we have openness early on so we can have an accurate understanding. But in I talk in my book about this term called the ghost kingdom, which I didn't coin. Um, Betty Jean Lifton coined it, but it's about how we kind of fantasize anytime there's an absence of facts or truth. And so for me growing up, I, in my ghost kingdom, my birth mother was Halle Berry and my birth father was Magic Johnson because Magic Johnson has a huge smile. He's a black guy. I have a huge smile. I'm black and he plays basketball and I played basketball. <laughs> and so he was my birth dad, even though he was not. And in in Halle Berry, there's really no good reason, just because, right? Right. <laughs> and um, and so it's it's like funny and and lighthearted, necessary for our curiosity to be able to live in a ghost kingdom. But then it made it tough when I did meet my birth mother, and <clears throat> my birth mother is is so much. I'm I'm so much happier that she's not Halle Berry, but at the same time, it was it took a long time for me to really understand who she was. And on the inverse, my birth mother, oftentimes when we're together, she is looking if there's an infant, a black little baby girl that passes, you know, and we're out and about, she'll stare at that baby so hard. And I know that she's thinking, like, is that my baby girl? Because she too is stuck in that moment of trauma. Right. And it's really hard for her to understand that I grew up, I'm an adult. And so that makes our relationship really tricky. Right. And before uh, we take our break, I want to take a call from <coughs> Chloe from West Hartford. And she has a question. Chloe, ask away. Hi, Angela. Um, I am also a child of adoption, although. Um, I am, so I am a biological um, white child, but I have two adopted siblings and they are both um, biologically related and they are Hispanic. So we are a family of transracial adoption. And I, um, I feel like growing up, I had, 
um, you know, it, it was it was a dynamic that I never, you know, didn't know. My siblings were adopted when I was super young. Uh, but with you having seven siblings also all adopted and likely not from the exact same background as you, um, I would love to know, like, how your interactions were with all of your siblings and how you feel like that dynamic sort of worked out. Sure. Yeah. And I should clarify, my parents did have one biological child and then the rest were all adopted. It's always a tricky question because I don't know any different. You know, I don't know what life would be like if I hadn't had all of these siblings. Um, It was just life, right? So inside of our house, we were just a family. It really wasn't until we would leave our home and then kind of be thrust with all of these comments from strangers at the grocery store, people who would say, oh my gosh, your parents are saints for what they've done. And wow, like it really wasn't until we were met with that outside the home that it would remind me of how unique our family was. But inside of our home, I the, the discussions about adoption, they kind of were around, you know, some of my siblings had relationships with their biological parents, others didn't. We had a lot of conversations about our history and um, social issues because of so many of us being adopted out of that need. I think about one of my siblings who has fetal alcohol syndrome. So we would often talk about alcoholism and what that means. And so learning about the impact of like alcohol on a fetus at a really young age was what we, it was like dinnertime conversation. And, but I, there was no sense of, um, it wasn't weird, you know, that we were all in this family. It was just, it was just our norm. Well, thank you so much, Chloe, for asking the question and sharing your story with us. You've been listening to Angela Tucker, who is the author of the book, You Should Be Grateful, Stories of Race, Identity, and Transracial Adoption. You can find a link to her book on our website, ctpublic.org slash where we live. And she's staying with us for the hour, and we want to hear from you, too. If you have a personal experience with adoption, give us a call, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. 
I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. Today, we're talking with Angela Tucker. She's the author of You Should Be Grateful, Stories of Race, Identity, and Transracial Adoption. And she's also the executive director of the Adoptee Mentoring Society. And part of her work is hosting an adoptee support group. And Angela, before we ask you about the support group, which we're really excited to talk about, uh, we spoke with Kim King earlier. She is the uh, 2022 Connecticut State Teacher of the Year, and she's also a transracial adoptee. Her parents adopted her from Korea. Let's take a quick listen. The thing that we, I didn't even think about until I was an adult was that trauma of um, not only um, being taken from your birth family, but um, also the trauma of losing your culture and losing that experience um, of, you know, I, I didn't know the difference between what it meant to be Korean or Chinese or, you know, because I grew up in a very small suburban town in Connecticut. And um, I think that a lot of the adults in my life were very misinformed and there were a lot of stereotypes for the longest time, I thought really being Korean meant I everything that was Chinese was Korean. So I really thought um, I had this really weird uh, understanding of what it meant to be Korean. And it was, really wasn't until I was an adult that I was realized, oh, this is a completely different culture and um, has a, its own unique history. Angela, with what Kim just said, there are so many layers there that I know we can talk about. And I I feel like a thread here, too, is many experiences you don't really realize until you're an adult. So is this something that Mm -hmm. you hear often? And and does it inform you, too, when you started the support group? Yeah, so many transracial adoptees talk about feeling like racial imposters. And I write about this in my book quite a bit. But it's not just adults. I do think that certainly there is a freedom and a safety when you're an adult to look back on your childhood. And it's pretty, it would be pretty scary to analyze and critique your adoptive parents' choice to maybe live in a homogenous area. Like that's, that's pretty scary to do that. So that's partly why it gets pushed off, but through the mentoring work that I do, we actually have these conversations sooner. And part of it is that adoptive adoption agencies are doing a better job of articulating the, the it, really it's cultural neglect if we're not allowing our children to have racial mirrors and instead they are completely tokenized and isolated, that that, that is happening a little bit less, thankfully. So it's not just adulthood that you reflect. Um, I think about one thing that I'm often speaking about in, in my speeches and keynotes and in my book too, is white parents needing to outsource some of the parenting duties if they have a black or brown child, because there are certainly things that they just cannot provide to their child, no matter how much they want to, that it can only be provided 
by somebody who looks like them. And that comment and, you know, my hope, it's being received, I think, a little bit better than it had in the past when we had this love is all we need sort of mentality. I think that's dissipating, thankfully. And then it's allowing adoptees to not feel like racial imposters or like Kim said, like they don't even understand anything about their own people. That's um, thankfully going a little bit by the wayside. Right. And and with what you described, you know, your own experience earlier and as well as what, what we just heard from Kim, it sounds like a lot of this was navigated on your own. So can you talk about uh, the support group that you provide for adoptees, the adoptee lounge? Now, it's such an obvious question, but, you know, why is it important to have this lounge available? <laughs> yeah, I I love it. It's the adoptee lounges are virtual. So I'm chatting actually with adoptees across the world. Um, and I do it in groups so other adoptees can sometimes for the first time be in another space with an adopted person and to have somebody that just gets it, that just understands intrinsically what it's like to be the only person of color in a room or to be the only person who can't um, manufacture a baby picture. Um, those experiences, which previously for so many adoptees had been something they maybe have glossed over because there's such a pressure to just be happy for what you're given and not think backwards. There is so much relief in the room, these Zoom rooms um, from other adoptees were just like, oh my goodness, I didn't know there was anybody else who knew this. So yeah, it's it's both really obvious and at the same time, hard to find these places. And Distinctly for same race adoptees, um, you know, I think for the folks who are listening, obviously our NPR listeners, so they might know Steven Skeep's voice from NPR National. He is an adoptee. He was he um, was with me on my book tour in D.C. and he talked about being white and having white adoptive parents and how there was even less space for him than people who were transracially adopted to bring up adoption and how that was uniquely isolating for him, which also is really kind of a topic that we don't often recognize. Right. And there are just so many nuances here that I feel like with every conversation, you you break down something different or you learn something different. And, and hopefully listeners will uh, find some comfort in this conversation if you share this experience. And I with that, I'm going to take another quick call from Ryan, who is calling in from Bristol. Ryan, you're on the air. You've got about a minute. Hi. Well, there's two things. The comment you just made about the, the same race adoption, I was adopted into a, a white family, and I'm white myself, and I look a lot like my parents. So I had sort of the opposite thing where I would go through life and people would ask me questions about oh my birth or you know my parents and I would say oh, I I I don't know why I look like them, but yeah. and it, it sort of made you know it sort of made me sad at the same time because the, like you said there wasn't that obvious sort of jumping off point for discussion right. about being adopted it was always a very awkward sort of uh, no they're they're you know yeah they're my parents but they're not my biological parents right and secondly I was brought up 
to be, I, I knew I was adopted right from the beginning. And so I was brought up to sort of be proud of the fact that I was chosen to be, you know, to be adopted. And it wasn't until I got into school and I proudly announced that I was adopted. And it was my peers that broke me down. You know, it was my peers yeah. that were telling me that, you know, like, oh, your parents gave you up. Your parents didn't love you. And, you know, you listen to your peers more than you listen to adults and parents at that age. And so that sort of set the tone for most of my childhood until I really figured out, you know, at age 16, 17, like, oh, my my mom was just 15 and she was not able to take care of a kid by herself. And I didn't yeah. understand that until I was 15 myself, you know? Yeah, yeah. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Wow is the word, really. Ryan, thank you so much for for sharing your story. We appreciate you taking the time and being so generous to share that with us. And and Angela, especially with what Ryan just just shared, you know, you support adoptees of all ages that are navigating their feelings about adoption. So what would you say to adults You know, like Ryan, who just called that are just starting to navigate their very complicated feelings now? So many, so Ryan talked about that phrase, you were chosen. And this is a conundrum. It's it's not something I love because I think it's like a, a knee-jerk response to try to smooth over everything that adoptive parents use, when in reality, they sometimes don't even know if that's the case. Like, if if the the birth parents really truly had a choice is um it this is all stuff that i talk about with adult adoptees like let's just break down your birth mother was 15 years old you know like let's talk about what may have happened then that leads us into thinking about um her life and what supports she may may or may not have had and what happened. I think there's um, just an unraveling that has to happen where we think through our birth parents' lives instead of just like a Hallmark card. You were chosen, you're special. Because I, it's not unusual for like Ryan, for our peers to say what they have seen in society and media messaging is that it's that birth parents are bad adoption means you're not wanted so when our parents stop at just you were chosen i love you so much i'm so glad in your fit that you're in our family it, it makes it really hard for us to make sense of how both things can be true at the same time and i feel like that's pretty much what we're always talking about in the lounges how our adoptive parents may have had really good intentions and we can understand why they may have wanted to shield us from certain information but in shielding us it just further served to like isolate because life maybe didn't completely make sense and you mentioned media portrayals just now, and we talked about that earlier, too, in terms of social media, film and television in one of our intros and and how they portray stories of transracial adoption has impacted the way many people view it. So what do you how do you think about the way media portrays these stories? Well, social media is actually a different animal in the sense yes, that absolutely. when you look at um hashtag adoptee voices you're hearing from youth from teenagers from young adults from college-aged 
adoptees who are really honest about their experiences. So that's kind of cool, the great equalizer. Um, But media, yeah, that we all know, like the blind side, and we think about Michael Orr and his depiction of adoption, which if you watch the film, you realize that Michael Orr himself, his character only has a few lines and a few opportunities to talk about how it feels to have been plucked from homelessness and then rescued, which is what the portrayal by these noble Christian white folks who turn him into this all-American star. Like that, that rags to riches storyline is really common And we don't often hear like from the adoptee, how does that make you feel to be portrayed this way? And is it actually accurate? Do you feel like you're rich? And (laughs) um, I had the great opportunity to help uh, season five of the show, This Is Us, worked with the writers uh, to make sure that one of the characters, Randall, who is a transracial adoptee, to make sure that they were portraying him accurately that made me really excited, gave me so much hope to know that writers are actually trying to consult with us, no longer just using adoption as like this catalyst for drama. You know, it's so easy. Think about Elf or sure. The Lion King or right. all these movies where it's just so easy to remove a parent and then there is your fantastical journey instead of thinking about Like, how does this actually feel? We've been talking with Angela Tucker, who is the author of the book, You Should Be Grateful, Stories of Race, Identity, and Transracial Adoption. You can find a link to her book on our website, ctpublic.org slash where we live. She'll be staying with us. And coming up next, we're going to hear from an adoption agency and learn about the type of conversation they have with potential transracial adoptive parents. And for our listeners, if you're interested in learning more about transracial adoption, the University of Connecticut's Health Adoption Assistant Program provides services like counseling and education to any family parenting through adoption or guardianship. The services are free and confidential, and they're able to respond to most callers the same day. You can also find a link to their website on our webpage, ctpublic.org slash where we live. And you can also join the conversation, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. Today, we're talking about adoption, specifically transracial and transcultural adoption. And joining us now is Laura Sullivan. She's a chief program officer at Just Choice Adoption Agency that is based in Ohio and works with adoption providers and families across the country. Laura, welcome to where we live today. Hi, thank you for having me. It's an honor to be here and to hear all that Angela has said so far. And it's an honor that you're here with us, with Angela, who is still with us. Angela Tucker is the author of the book, You Should Be Grateful, Stories of Race, Identity, and Transracial Adoption. And she's also the executive director of the Adoptee Mentoring Society. So I want to start this conversation by hearing from Kim King again. We heard from her earlier. She's a transracial adoptee from Connecticut, and she's also our 2022 State Teacher of the Year. Let's take a quick listen here. 
1970s, the uh, the views on adoption and the kind of um, how parents um, approach adoption is a little bit, as in, uh, especially intercountry adoption, is very different. Um, back in the 1970s, my parents were told assimilation was the most important thing, right? So we didn't talk about me being Korean. We didn't talk about culture. We didn't talk about um, me being adopted at all, even though it was kind of the elephant in the room um, that I looked very different than my um, blue-eyed, uh, blonde, curly-haired sisters. Um, so, uh, but as I got older, um, I started to think about it more. Laura, we we heard a lot of comments earlier from callers and from Angela with what Kim just shared as well. So I want to ask, how do you have conversations with parents about transracial adoption? You know, what do you hear from from them? So when we first start having conversations with families who are you know, starting their adoption journey or are on it with us, we start by asking them to do honest, hard work. And that work for them has to start inside um, for all adoptions. But specifically when we're talking about transracial adoption, it's not just the grief work, but there has to be an education. There has to be anti-racist work that they tackle. And they have to be willing to step into that space, have tough conversations, listen to perspectives that aren't theirs, and be able to stretch themselves. And so we start by assessing, you know, are you in a space where you want to do that? Is that really what you want? And if it's not, you know, helping them arrive at maybe adoption isn't for you, and especially transracial adoption. And especially with what we just heard from from Kim and what you just said with those conversations, you know, when we when you do have potential adopted families come in saying that they're going to go into this process colorblind, colorblind, you know, how do you respond to that? Um, well, by letting them know that you know choosing to be colorblind is something that only people with privilege get to do, and we can't be colorblind in this space. It's not an option. Your child isn't going to walk, they they don't have your white skin just because you adopted them and the world is not going to see them that way. And so you have to start by at home, not seeing them that way, doing the work and educating yourself, listening to voices. And like Angela said earlier, making sure that you're bringing in perspectives from their culture because you can't be everything to them as their white parent. I right now am in a space of being able to um, parent two, um, two Black boys. And I don't get to be colorblind because the world doesn't treat them that way. And Angela also talks about in her book about how many transracial adoptees have the burden of educating their parents about issues of race. So how, how do you, what's your process like, like navigating through that? I think that we... The burden is on the adoptive parent or the parent, whether you're parenting in kinship or parenting in an adoption space, you that burden is on you. That burden is on you to build a relationship with their family and their culture. And while it's really important to listen to the children in our home, our adopted children, our kinship children, because they offer a unique perspective and culture, blackness, is not a monolith. So we have to do our own work, educate ourselves, but also listen. And sometimes when we just will listen to teenagers or kids in general, they're going to teach us the most. 
And just want to mention that we got a comment from Andy from Cromwell. He is a facilitator for the Cromwell chapter of the Adoptees Connected, which is a nonprofit for adult adoptees to get together and share their experiences. And for those who are interested, you can find them on Facebook. And so with what Andy just shared, too, and then we talked about this with Angela earlier, too, with her adoptee lounge, having these conversations has been very helpful, and and she's finding more and more people willing to talk about it. Are you finding the same with with families who come in who want to adopt to have these difficult conversations or complicated conversations and, and come out from it learning a lot? Yes. So I would say at Choice, you know, we are pretty open and honest about our approach to adoption being different than most other adoption agencies and organizations. Um, Adoption, we view it more as our side hustle, and we're working to create a more just world where we don't need as much adoption. And all of the families that come to us come to us with some level of that understanding. They understand the inequality, the inequities that exist in this space. And so they've already done some level of work or they probably wouldn't be that interested in working with us. And so we are able to step in and have those hard conversations and they're still hard, but they are at least in a posture of wanting to know. And that conversation often looks like me telling them, you know, we the burden is on you to keep that connection with your child's biological family, because that is, that's, we, I find myself saying it's a gift, but it's really not a gift. It's what they deserve. They deserve to have adoptive parents who are willing to stay connected with their biological family and really dig in and create a relationship before that child was even born. And that's how we really train up our families is that you need to connect with you know, your hopeful potential child's birth mom and build a relationship because we believe that adoption keeps families together. And that looks like adoptive families and biological families becoming kin to each other. And so early, I'll go for it. Um, And so we have to sit in those spaces and have conversations. And the biggest thing that I tell them is you have to give your child space and create a very intentional space for them to explore who they are, know who they are. And the more you can tell them about their origin story, about their biological family, the better off they're going to be because they're not making things up. And if you're able to participate and be invited into that ghost kingdom that Angela mentioned, that's better for them because if kids aren't given facts and parts of their story, then they make it up. And sometimes that's helpful and protective and sometimes it's harmful. And I think a couple comments on what Laura has talked about around educating families. So much of what her work is, is persuading folks away from the saviorism trope and that there's got to be like, I've talked to so many adoptees whose parents chose to keep their birth parents away from their families. They wanted a closed adoption because they felt like their birth parents weren't safer. Um, And and for the adoptees, what I hear them saying is, if my adoptive parents don't love my birth parents, then how can they really love me? And I think that is so true that there is this desire to, for us adoptees to be like, we don't want you to just like go through the motions and want to like black culture. We want you to actually enjoy and 
think like the hashtag black girl magic is real. It's not just like, oh, shoot, I have to do this because you're here. And for me, many times that conversation sounds like I need you to tell me that you have friends that are people of color before you're going to even think about adopting a child of color. Because if you have friends and a community that reflects your kid, then it's more likely that you actually do respect our culture and find it to be beautiful and something you want to be part of. And we only got about a a minute left, so I hate to do this to both of you, but with 30 seconds each, Laura, let's start with you. Any final thoughts for our listeners? What do you hope they take away from this conversation? Um, Show up and be honest with yourself. Um, Be willing to do the hard work of exploring and listen to the voices that we have an opportunity to listen to. So we've talked a lot about how culture change has happened and we're moving in this way, but we also have this whole world of podcasts where so many adoptees who didn't have a voice are being vulnerable and giving us the gift of sharing their stories and inviting other adoptees in to share theirs. And there's so much to learn from that lived experience that allow us to be better parents and professionals. And so I encourage you to listen to adoptees and birth families. And Angela, I know we just scratched the surface, but same thing to you, 30 seconds. What do you hope our listeners can take away from this conversation? (laughs) Yeah, I definitely echo Laura, but I, I do. Yeah, I echo Laura in the sense that not just listening because we have been, our voices have been marginalized, but our experience and insights around being raised as transracial adoptees, I think we have new perspectives on so many other issues in our society, like conjunction of race and power relations around economic class and religion, nationality, citizenship, immigration. Like, I think there's such a power in our lived experience that goes beyond just helping adoptive parents understand this world or adoption agencies, but much broader, you know, influencing policy and legislation. Well, thank you so much for sharing that with us. You've been listening to Angela Tucker, who's the author of the book, You Should Be Grateful, Stories of Race, Identity, and Transracial Adoption. Thank you so much, Angela, for being with us today. It has been a joy. Thank you. And Laura Sullivan, Chief Program Officer at Just Choice, thank you for being with us today. Thank you. I'm Catherine Shen. Today's show is produced by Tess Terrible. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. Download where we live anytime on your favorite podcast app. And thank you all so much for listening. <laughs>